Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the, books, in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, June 15th, 2023. I'm joined um, again sooner than usual, but delightfully sooner, Kelly Jensen sitting in for Rebecca, who is on her way to Spain. Actually, I think she's in Portugal right now, Kelly. And um, she sent some follow-up for me to pass along to the listeners, which I'll get to in a second. So always working, <laughs> Rebecca Shinsky. Uh, Kelly joins in, in what turned out to be an enormous week of news. Yeah. Um, and Kelly was mentioning that it wasn't quite as much fun as last uh, time you were on, but such is such are the vicissitudes of the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of books and reading. Um I'm going to start at the top to note, we're not going to spend too much time on the passing of Cormac McCarthy and Robert Gottlieb. Um, there's plenty of links. I'm going to put some links in the show notes about the best stuff I've seen. Um, the The Gottlieb obit I'm waiting for is, is um, Caro going to write anything? That's what I'm curious to see. I don't know. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. I don't know. He's He's busy on book nine of the LBG series or whatever he's doing. But that's the one. But Cormac McCarthy, start there. I mean, what to say? One of the giants of the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most recognizable stylists. Um, has signal books that were also turned into signal movies as the height of literary fiction, which is not easy to do. Um, doesn't sound like he was the best husband in the world. That's you know one thing that's going around. On the other hand... I don't know. I don't know where we are in those kinds of things, but someone who's very important to me, um, I thought, you know, you brought up in this, like, did they get these two books out at the same time because they thought the clock was ticking? Yeah. I've been I've been wondering about that. Like, that was the think, first thing I thought when I saw the news. I was yeah. like, he just put out two books back to back last fall. I wonder if there was, I mean, he was getting older too. So there's right. also like yeah. the reality of time is, right. you know, what right. it is. But did they kind of suspect that this might be the last two things that he produces and why not put them out there at once and make sure that he also gets to have the moment of like, here's right. my entire opus of That's right. material. That's a great um, point. So I, um, you know, what's interesting is he is one who kind of spans that literary and popular fiction, yeah, like that's a great he point. straddles that line because even folks who I know are not like literary fiction people or even big book people in general knew who he was and knew what he wrote and talked about having some kind of connection to his work that was outside of having to study it in an English class or mm-hmm. a um, literature class. So um, I think that that's a point like worth thinking too about why right. it is such a big deal. This is somebody who kind of met both big readers and not so big readers alike. Yeah. And the 2000 book, The Road, was a phenomenon. I mean, Mm -hmm. people were reading that book. Oprah picked it. It was one of those, for me, I mean, I was thinking about this, probably three of my 10 signal reading experiences are Cormac McCarthy books, which is wild to say, Um, but The Road was one of them. It's kind of a one sitting, you know, seat of your pants. I saw Lauren Groff tweeting about how it kind of wrecked her world for a while, (laughs) reading The Road, especially, (laughs) I think she either had a new kid or... um, soon to have a kid, which if you read The Road, you, you might understand why that's a particular thing. Blood Meridian. Um, and then also, I'll say, just to speak to the last two books, The Passenger, Stella Maris, Twin, Duology, whatever, uh, listeners of this podcast know, <laughs> that screwed me up. I had a had a meltdown on the show about my reaction to it. I think it's amazing and ununderstandable and wild and beautiful and disturbing. Um 
it makes sense that those came out together. It's a, it's weird for so many reasons. I think you're right to wonder about that. I, I think they go together in a way that makes sense they come out together. I'm actually sure, and maybe they should have been one book. They're different enough. It's a very unusual pairing, and I think you could make all kinds of cases for it. Um, you could have released Stella Maris a year later and give it some space, and maybe they just didn't want to do that. Apparently, he was working on a screenplay for Blood Meridian, I don't know if that's true or not, but I had heard that that was something that he was working on, so he's still working. That's different than writing and starting a novel from scratch. I don't know what other mm-hmm. kinds of texts are out there, um, for sure. But you know, a signal, a signal author, and it's interesting that you say you're right. He was popular and became well regarded amongst the kinds of people who well regard things, <laughs> I guess, mm-hmm. uh, in the literary yeah. landscape. In the beginning of his career, he was thought of much more middle brow of like writing these bloody Western thrillers. Um, and over time, that changed, which I I never really knew. But some people have been or more or much older than I am have been talking about you know his early years, really before his really he kind of turns to genre and makes genre literary fiction, which is now at the forefront of a lot of literary fiction. Um, I think well regarded in a different kind of, of way. So there's lots of good reading out there. Um, I'll round I'll round up some. You can check the show notes if you want to make that. And then Robert Gottlieb died yesterday. Um, of course, the editor dies the day after the the famous writer, and so doesn't get quite the shine that maybe he would have. Though Robert Gottlieb, as editors go, I don't know that someone could have gotten more shine. I mean, he's he's the the example you point to right now. If you know an editor that was living as of yesterday, it was Robert Gottlieb. Um, I mean, I don't even know what to say, Kelly. I mean, like, here, here's the one. Here's one. Discovered Joseph Heller, right? Signed him to do Catch Twenty Two. Originally, it was chi- it was it was titled Catch Eighteen, and the Twenty Two was Gottlieb. Uh, Catch Eighteen. That sounds weird. That's that's nothing. I. It's kind of like that old that little chestnut from How about just Facebook? Get rid of the the. But then, you know, Le Carre, Morrison famously, almost too many to name. Um, there's a, he wrote a really wonderful book called Avid Reader, his, his sort of a biography of himself as a reader. There's wonderful tributes, actually more heartfelt tributes to Gottlieb coming out today because he worked with so many people where McCarthy was happy to sort of eat beans and write books and neglect his, you know, household duties. It seems like that was his vibe. But... Um, yeah, Gottlieb, just an amazing, amazing person. If if you haven't quite found the time to watch Turning the Page, which is a documentary his daughter, I don't know if she directed, I know she produced it fairly, she may have directed as well, about the working relationship of Caro and, and, and Gottlieb. It's quite wonderful. It's a good way to spend 90 minutes if you're into this sort of thing. But I don't know. I'm, I'm going to try to get to have someone on first edition to talk to me more in depth about hopefully both of them in time. Um but Robert Gottlieb and Cormac McCarthy fare thee well. Um, I'll give them some space. We'll do our first sponsor break, do a little follow-up, and get into the news stories of the week. Today's episode is brought to you by Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye. Bone familiar Rosie spends most of her days in the Bone Forest, hiding her powers to avoid conscription by the Witch King's army. But when she saves the life of Princess Shaw, she's offered the chance to attend the prestigious school Witch Hall. And at Witch Hall, Rosie finds herself embroiled in political games she doesn't understand. Shaw wants Rosie as a partner to help lead the coming war. Meanwhile, all Rosie wants is to stay out of trouble, but she can't really deny her attraction to Shaw. So the question is, will Rosie give in to her destiny or will the Bone Forest call her home once and for all? Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye is for all the magic school lovers. This immersive magic school is full of witches and familiars. It's also a queer normative fantasy world with a sapphic slow burn romance like we love. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. So this book I'm about to tell you about might be the next book talk, darling. It's a high octane fantasy adventure filled with risk, romance, action, and sweet vengeance. In it, there are five liars who have five agendas, but only one target. So in Five Broken Blades from author Mae Corlin, the five most dangerous liars in the land have been mysteriously summoned to work together for a single objective, which is to kill the cruel God King June. 
each has tasted bitterness from the hired hitman seeking atonement to the lovely assassin dreaming of freedom to even the prince exiled for his own crimes. This is a high stakes game of treachery where the vengeance is sweet. The secrets are delicious and each page deepens a journey that will keep you guessing until the very end. This also has themes of friendship, found family. You got a little bit of everything in this. Make sure to check out Five Broken Blades and thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Kelly, if I say the word spreadges to you, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh,. No, and I would not like you saying that word to me. I don't want to be ever saying it again. So this was a bit we did on the last show because The Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros has become a publishing phenomenon. You cannot buy it anywhere, completely sold out. It went from number two on the hardcover bestsellers in all fiction last week to like number 22 from 44,000 to 5,000 because there are no more copies to be had. It sold out at Bookshop, sold on Amazon, sold at Barnes & Noble, sold at my local pals. If you have a bookstore out there, it's probably sold out there as well. TikTok phenomenon. But the spreads, we talked about this last show, which is a portmanteau. I don't know what's a portmanteau. I guess it's just, it's not a portmanteau. Portmanteau is you put two things together. If you collect two things, I don't know the words of this. So it's a shortening, it's a diminution of sprayed edges. That's what spreads is. It sounds disgusting. Um, It sounds like something you should have safe safe search on for if you put it in the Google search bar. But apparently the marketing for this was about the physical book in a limited edition and has these sprayed edges. It's black with a white silhouette of dragons. Not my jam. If this is your jam, go crazy, have fun. Well, you can't now unless you already bought it. But that's some follow-up. Thank you to everyone who um, um, emailed in. Apparently this particular term, it sounds like Waterston's over in the UK started doing special editions with fancy edges. Mm-hmm. And they coined this term, spreads, which I would now like mm. to kill with fire. Um, yeah. Can we do? Can we literally do any other word for it than this? And like, honestly, if you're just going to do something cool, it doesn't need a word. People know what sprayed yeah. edges means. They don't need to, like, ugh, gross. Yeah. Like, that Though makes sprayed really edges cool. is also kind of gross. So it's yeah. like, that was awesome. <laughs> I, it's more descriptive than the other word, which I'm not going right. to repeat. <laughs> No, that's right. Yeah, so that's thank you all for emailing in um, about that. Uh, got that in there. So Rebecca's missive today. She texted me just just an hour ago. Um, I don't know if this is follow up so much as trolling me and us, <laughs> but she mentioned she went into the um, uh, tiny bookstore in, in Portugal, and there's a whole Colleen Hoover table of, of Colleen Hoover in Portuguese, uh, which I hadn't thought is. about this. Of course there is. It's not just the U.S. It's everywhere yeah. now. So there you go. That's that. Okay. Uh, let's see. Boy, Kelly, where would you like to start? You you brought one uh, major story. Well, you've got two. I don't know. How are we going to tackle these in a way that doesn't feel like we're <laughs> you know digging graves? <laughs> is there a way to tackle it? Maybe know. we start... Maybe we start with a story that kind of fascinates me a little bit. You would drop this one into yes. the um, notes that we have about the New mm. York Times book review, mixing it up. Yeah. Um, so the TLDR on this one is that Pamela Paul, who is now noted for a lot of very terrible opinions as opinions editor at the New York Times. What a Times. heel turn for Pamela Paul. <sighs> Good Lord. Uh, it, yeah. That's like maybe a different podcast. Yeah. Um, so she's she's no longer in charge of the book review, and now we have a new editor. It's Gilbert Cruz. And mm-hmm. Cruz is talking about different ways to kind of bring the book review section back to being this powerhouse in the paper of record. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he wants to do is really make the book review, like the title, the go-to. And doing this is going to take... take changing the way that they cover books and talk about books. And 
Um, one of the examples in this PW piece that we'll link to is about it will no longer run, quote unquote, double reviews. So two <laughs> critics reading the same book and giving their opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also experimenting with different kinds of coverage. So, for example, they have done like a read your way around the world series. And what's interesting to me um <laughs> About this is I have never cared about the New York Times book review. And in fact, like, as uh, I just read this great report and I will put it in the um, document so that it can be linked um, about how younger generations are ingesting and thinking about the news and sources that they trust and get their information from. So legacy media, such as the New York Times, has kind of done a good job on Facebook and Twitter, except as we know, young people are not on Facebook and Twitter. They Mm -hmm. don't care. They don't trust it. They're getting their information from you know, influencers from people who don't actually have any professional credentials God, or if God they do. Help us all. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, well, we could blame their parents who think yeah, that they know I the facts so. about everything too. Um, so, you know, that got me thinking about my own relationship with like the paper of record and mm-hmm. until what year did they even care about diverse books? It was after the industry was screaming right. about this needing to happen. And so I think that the ship sailed a long time ago as being like the go-to source for mm-hmm. most readers. I think it certainly still has influence for the publishing sphere and for the New York City sphere. But like, I think we need to understand that that very insular world is very insular for a reason. Um, it doesn't resonate with the rest of the country. What does it look like to the rest of the world? I can't speak so much too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that their decision to kind of mirror what other book sources are doing mm-hmm. and expand their coverage is one late in the game, but two, like the only way that maybe they can capture that new readership and capture that younger readership. Yeah. It's interesting because they have if you if you were taking bets on the future of media 10 years ago, no one would have picked the New York Times as one of the winners, but Mm -hmm. they are. Say what you will. I mean, you you can look Mm. at the corpses of other digital media places Mm -hmm. and their print, but they navigated the paywalled subscription model the best of anyone that's done it at scale. Um, And what that means is interesting because how do you grow that, right? Because you do not Mm -hmm. subscribe digitally to the New York Times book review right now. You get that for free as part of your New York Times digital whatever. Uh, used to be, I used to subscribe, Kelly, to just the Sunday book review. That's the kind of nerd I was in print and had it delivered in Brooklyn. So I was one of those guys um, at some point. And, you know, I, I think it's important to say, too, that Book Riot was started not as a counter to the New York Times, certainly, itself, but as, as filling in gaps that mm-hmm. places like the New York Times missed. And read your way around the world how many posts have we done about, we did one the other day about YA books in Italy or something like that. Mm-hmm. We're like two steps beyond just this. Now, they tend to be late and best when it comes to yeah. that kind of stuff because they have resources sure. that other people don't. But I think you're right to say like, does this really move, is, are more people going to subscribe to the New York Times because they, they now have a read your way around the world series? I and don't I, understand. I don't know that. I just don't know that that's going to be the case. I think, too, it's important to talk about the legacy that Paul left yes. in this particular position and, and where she went from here and how uh, the views that she has expressed very openly counter so much of what readers care deeply about. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of needing to rebuild that reputation that in the current media landscape we're in, I'm not sure how quickly that could happen or how that happens. You know, we know an author, you know, responds to a bad review, they get their book pulled, they're done, they're out. Um, So what happens when somebody at the paper of record leaves this legacy and continues this legacy of, you know, uh, for better or for worse, transphobia? We know that's what it is. Mm. Um, how, How do readers gain that trust back? Yeah, and and they they seem to be wanting to double down on the New York Times book review as a brand. I thought it was smart. 
and maybe this is the way I consume the Times, their reportage of book-related topics is second to none. It just is. They will do reported pieces on book-related topics. Now, again, they may not cover what we want them to cover and the way we want to cover it, but they have resource and they dedicate time to it. I would double down on that because no one else can touch that. Those are, those are re- they have 20 critics, editors, and reporters at their disposal. And Alexandra Alter, who does a lot of their straight news coverage, is as good as it gets as covering news pieces. Put to the opinion stuff to the side. That's always been tricky business, especially when Paul is at the helm. They've got a lot of work mm-hmm. to do there. I have no idea about Cruz himself. Mm-hmm. It's a person of color. That's a change yeah. to the good in a lot of different ways. I have no idea what his political views are. Tina Jordan, yeah. I think, who was the interim, I think is more sympathetic to... I guess my way of thinking about the world. Um, and so I don't know if that's going to change. But doubling down on book reviews, you know, we don't run book reviews for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. And they covered, they did 2,300 book reviews last year, which is a lot, but also can't cover everything. Even that misses big tracks of the publishing well, industry. So I don't know how you do that. And and not just that, but anybody who knows anything about publishing knows that the way the books get picked for mm-hmm. review and the book review is not necessarily objective. You know, um, we don't know the mechanisms by which they're picked, and that's part yeah. of the frustration with it from people who like write books for a living. Um, mm-hmm. Because a New York Times book review is going to do great things for a book, um, but how come some? People have multiple books reviewed, and these aren't necessarily your, you know, a list like big name. Of course, right. you're going to see a review of you it. Have, um, you kind of have to cover it. Yeah, people yeah, know. yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, how come some of those more mid list authors see this? You know, several of their books mm-hmm. reviewed, and then particularly authors of color who fall in the mid list never see their titles um, covered. Like what? You know? Yeah. It's hard to say. So it's interesting. I'll be. I've always watched them with curious. I mean, I've always respected the New York Times. And any in- institution like this is going to have things that you, you do that they you do and don't like. Mm-hmm. But they have resources and they dedicate resources to things other people don't in our space, and that's powerful and it matters. And so I'm always curious to see what they're doing just from a kind of a business point of view because, of course, we do book coverage. So I'm always looking at them. But then, like, what kind of a worldview are they, even in, cho- in the, cho- the choices of coveraging structures, mm-hmm. what kind of ramifications does that have? Um, so this will be interesting to watch. It doesn't happen that often. Like, Paul was only there, what, 10 years? Which is pretty mm-hmm. short as these things go. These are these are often, you know, de facto Supreme Court appointments. It's like, until mm-hmm. you want to leave. <laughs> um, and I would love to know the story about Paul moving over to write <laughs> massively wrong-headed opinion pieces? Yeah. Is that what the New York Times wanted? I, I just yeah. can't imagine someone's like, you know what we need Pamela doing? We need her to write center-right frustrating pieces. I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it, Kelly. I don't get it at all. Uh, I, I'm there with you. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that one's out of the way. I guess um, this is one that I don't have a lot to say about it, and it's, an, well, it's a good example. It's a longer piece in the New York Times covering Norton's 100th anniversary. Norton is a one of the few remaining mid-size publishers. Mm-hmm. Maybe the only remaining, actually, if I think about it. Depends on how you understand the ownership structure of like Sourcebooks, which is 49% owned by PRH, or Algonquin, which is... But there's not that many. Let's just say it's not. there's not that many out there. And one of, maybe the signal reason it stands alone is that it's employee-owned. It's not owned mm. by a giant international conglomerate or it's publicly traded on of its own right, like Scholastic or something like that. This is an employee-owned publisher. Now, um, I've done a little research into employee ownerships. I'm interested in all business structures. Um, and it has strengths and weaknesses, but one of its strengths is that it will not get bought and sold like cattle as a part mm-hmm. of some restructuring. It, it exists for its own sake. Um, I don't know what exactly the charter here is. It, we don't get into the... There's a couple ways these things can be organized. I don't know if everyone has a voting share or there's a committee that does it, but at the very least, its financial goals are not the bottom line of A, themselves, so they can pass it on to some other outside entity, you know, an, an absentee owners or something like that, or as a part of a subdivision of Bertelsmann, which is a subdivision, which is a subdivision for other things like that. 
So it has a different kind of incentive, and it shows. It doesn't have big, flashy books. It doesn't pay giant advances. It doesn't do the kinds of stuff that, frankly, kind of pay a lot of the bills for the big publishers, but also exists for more of a bottom line point of view. It tends to be pretty mid-list, upmarket, mid-listy literary fiction, upmarket nonfiction. Um, and it's a fascinating list. And there's some there's some good quotes in this piece. I'll put a link in the show notes. It is paywalled, unfortunately. So, you know, go if you have a New York Times, you can get into it. But probably their biggest nonfiction author, and I've got to be careful here because I don't know about sales. But from my pantheon of my insta buys of Michael Lewis, he talks mm. about walking in there and it didn't feel like other publishers. And it's not. And I think if you are, I don't know, looking for a seven-figure advance, you're not going to Norton. Mm-hmm. But if that's not what you can get or you don't want or don't care about, it's an unusual home. I really respect Norton. I don't read as many Norton Live Right titles as maybe I could. Some of that is coverage. Some of that is whatever. But I always am interested to see what they do. And I'm always fascinated to see. And you can make it. I mean, there's an argument to me that most companies after a while should revert to being owned by their employees. Like, should it be a, a outside entity forever? There, there are costs to that as well. Um, again, it's not owned by the author, so they still have to do the thing of paying authors, which we you know, can get into a different podcast of how these things go. They still work with agents. They still have compensation troubles like everybody else and trying to figure it out because none of this shit is easy. But I just thought people should know that it stands alone and it's been around for 100 years. And Kelly, you cannot say that of many publishers. I don't mm-hmm. even know what, you, what publishers can you say that of. Random House has been around since 1940. Like, I don't even know who's out there, honestly. I didn't think of those terms. So it's worth a read if you're interested in this sort of thing. Did you know this about Norton, that they were employee-owned? I did not, but um, every book I've read from Norton has been great. And it reminds me a lot of, you had mentioned Algonquin. I'm an Algonquin author. Um, Mm, And so, you know, it reminds me a lot of what the ethos there has been um, Mm -hmm. pre-being purchased. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I don't have any experience there yet, so I can't. Right. That's not a like. <laughs> the future is yet to be written, I guess. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But it's very much, you know, they're, they're very. Um, obviously, they're driven by their bottom line. Every business has to be, but it's a little bit different right. than trying to sh- chase the next, like, big bestseller. Um, it's, yeah. it's that enduring quality of what they purchase. Yeah. So check that out in the show notes there. Okay, we're running out of um, good stories. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm torn. I'm like, do I want to talk about, the, you know, let's talk about the book band thing. Um, yeah, let's do it. Because, You're here. Because, we got to do it while you're here. Because we've got both here. We've got, a, mm-hmm. a a good story and a bad story. Um, they take place on the same do- same day, Monday, uh, this week, Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzker, who is the, one of two billionaires I respect in this world um, and has done some tremendous things for the state of Illinois. I say this as a near lifelong resident of Illinois. This is the first governor I remember that has not been an embarrassment or ended up in jail. Um, You know, and you can laugh about that, but that's real. Like it's, you know, politics in Illinois are terrible, but he signed a bill into um, being on Monday that effectively bans book bans. Now that sounds really exciting, but there's some nuance to this. Um, mm. First and foremost, it's um, schools and public libraries that get state funding. They are only eligible to get state funding if they have in their policies either the ALA's Library Bill of Rights or um, the Secretary of State, who is our state librarian, would work with, um, I believe it's the Illinois Library Association, I might be wrong on that, to develop like their own Library Bill of Rights that would mirror what gotcha. ALA gotcha. says. Right. Um, so that's not in stone yet, like what that might look like, but for now it's the ALA Bill of Rights. And, uh, you know, to get state funding, you would need this to be a part of your policies and you would need to follow it. Pretty mm. straightforward stuff. Um, what I like about it is that it says people who have a problem with a title in the library can still challenge it. Like, there's no, no books can ever be challenged again, but instead they have to follow the policy and they have to gotcha. share the policy. Um, it, which, like, mind blowing, that's a thing we need to say at this point because that's what's being, you know, exploited across the country. 
Um, so this is great. Illinois is a leader doing this, and it takes effect at the start of the year next year. Um, hmm. I know that there are a lot of librarians, particularly in schools, that are still not sure what this is going to look like for them. Like, what state funding does this mean? Does this mean grants? Does this mean, you know, uh, funding models are, are different in every state. Mm-hmm. And in Illinois, in Illinois, we are district libraries. So they're not necessarily all in a community. Like, my community library serves multiple communities. Um and then you could also have a district that serves, you know, 10, 12 different communities and it has multiple libraries. So funding's a little like, what does that exactly mean? But the state says that they're going to lay this all out and they're getting input from the Illinois Library Association. So there are working librarians and library professionals who are like involved in this process. So mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways, it feels pretty good because it feels like it's both there to serve and protect libraries while also taking into account like their expertise. This is not the state saying this is the way it's going to be, but rather like we want to collaborate with you who know how mm. to do this and, and make sure it works. Um, so that's the great news. That was signed on Monday. And then uh, the same day, our friends down in Texas um, signed a different bill, a parental rights bill. And within the parental rights bill is what's called the Reader Act. The Reader Act has two parts, and this is a book ban bill. The first part requires that the Texas State Library and Archives develop a method for determining what books are sexually inappropriate and thus cannot be included in school library collections. They are doing this in collaboration with the, um, I think it's the State Board of Education is who they need to get approval from when they create this manual. The trick of this is the State Board of Education is appointed by the governor. So while the Texas State Archives and Libraries is essentially, you know, filled with library professionals, they can't make the decisions until it's approved by the State Board of Education, which is essentially run by Greg Abbott. So that's part one. Part two. And it it doesn't get better in part two. It doesn't get better, no. Just to spoil it for everybody, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't get better. So part two is... Um, book vendors now need to put ratings on their books. And the ratings are going to be determined through the Texas Education Association. This is T. Um, T is also a toy and a tool of the governor. So the governor is going to have oversight and direct impact on the ratings of materials as well as the selections of materials. Um, This is not a good bill in any way, shape, or form. I've seen people suggest that uh, a couple of things. So let me start by saying, you know, one of the most common things I see people say who have have not been plugged into what's going on, Mm -hmm. well, that's what they get for voting the way that they vote. And you have to understand, Texas is one of the most gerrymandered states, um, and nearly no contest in Texas is contested because they have rigged the um, lines so much that it's always going to be the most conservative politician who gets put into office, which means that the most marginalized people in those communities do not have a voice um, because it's been made to be that way. So no, it's not what they voted for. It's what the politicians decided to do. Um, And I say that because it's really important to understand that most people disagree with this. Most people mm-hmm. do not like this. It Most polls people... so bad. It polls yeah. so bad yeah. across the board. Right. You know, and it doesn't matter if it's a red state or a blue state. Like Texas, I swear, you know, I, I lived in Texas for the years I didn't live in Illinois. And I, I like to point out, like, I, I lived in Austin, so that kind of colors where, like, mm-hmm. I, you know, my experience. But the reality is that state is not as red as you think it is. It's only as red as it looks because of the way politicians have have so designed the maps. Um, So that's one piece of this. The second piece of this is that, um, you know, it's been suggested that book vendors just not comply with this. And that still keeps books off the shelves of kids because by book vendors choosing not to put these ratings on there, they are out of their legal compliance with the first part of this law, which is the part where they decide what books are able to be in libraries. Right. Um, the The real solution here 
is that these book vendors need to file a lawsuit and get the mm-hmm. deadline of this bill just pushed and pushed and pushed because the longer that can is kicked down the road, the more opportunity there is to get these terrible people out of office and to really make it clear that these are First Amendment violations. Like, there's no question. It's crystal clear. Um, You know, there's a difference between giving parents the opportunity to complain um, and to challenge materials. It's another thing for the state to say, you know what, we can't have those materials on shelves. And Mr. Abbott, who, you know, I I don't need to tell you all about Mr. Abbott here, but, um, you know, why does he get to decide what my 12-year-old gets to read in her school? He doesn't. I don't care what he thinks. I get to decide. I'm the parent. That's what parental rights are. Um, And so it's it's an interesting contrast to see these two stories take place on the same day. You know, you get this, like, there should not be a bill in Illinois that says people can read books, that books are accessible, that there are not to be book bans. Um, And yet, we need that because then there are states like Texas where they are putting every barrier up there to access that they possibly can. Couple couple follow ups. I mean, you know the you know the laws better than I do. So the book vendors are is that like Ingram and Ta- is that Ingram and Baker and Taylor or is that like the publisher? Like the publisher has to print on the book some kind of rating. Like, do we even know what compliance looks like um, at all? Answer, like, I don't even know. We don't know. Like we that's don't know. Yeah. we don't know, and we don't know how this is going to impact, say, ebooks that are purchased as part of a package through. You know, a provider. We don't know what this is going to look like for audiobooks. Like, there's, it's so intentionally vague to serve the purpose of nobody wants to do anything because are they going to get in trouble for doing the thing? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't have anything <laughs> else to add. I just don't even know what compliance would look like if, even if you yeah. were, or as, as you're saying, like, if you have to comply so they can make any of your books available at all, right? Mm-hmm. How do you even do that? And because these ratings also notoriously, they're going to be built to suit an agenda that is bad, right? So any mm-hmm. mention of sex at all is going to be NC-17. That's just yep. how this is going to work. Yep. This is this is what's going to happen this way. And it'll have a chilling effect all up and down. I mean, you've, you've tried to get some sense of... And I think with not as much response as you would have liked, like what kind of chilling effect is that having on the acquisition side and the marketing mm-hmm. side, even frankly, authors writing, right? If you're mm-hmm. writing a book that you think is, does genderqueer get written today? I'm not sure. I think it's an open question. Maybe genderqueer is a bad example. That's just a high, what are the books that have, that could maybe write some piece of it out of it? You can't write the mm-hmm. genderqueerness out of genderqueer because then you don't have a book. But if you have, you know, if it's are you there, if you if it's today, are you there? God's me, Margaret. Does Judy Bloom put in all the same stuff? Or and not? that's you know that is where we also get into this question of self censorship. I've been right, that's right. That's you know, right. I've been thinking about this a lot um, for a couple of reasons. The first being that I think even the most outspoken unafraid to say things as they are, people are censoring themselves right now, Um, particularly educators and library Mm -hmm. individuals, because they're afraid. Um, And you can't How could they not be, Kelly? I mean, it's reason. How could they not be? Yeah, you're right. How could you not be? And and that's the exact point of all this. That's the chilling effect. Um, You know, and then in addition to that, the... uh, I just put this together so it'll go out after the podcast goes um, live, But this week, I'm asking authors to share what their experience has been in terms of school visits and library visits over the last year, because the number of queer authors in particular who said that their income, you know, which makes up for some of them a significant chunk of of their income. um, People don't know that, actually. Yeah. That's a great point. People Mm -hmm. don't know this about kids' book, especially. Like, I, you know, I have firsthand experience with it, just having the authors come to my kids' school, which is great, and they're really good about whatever. But I didn't put together how big of a deal that is for people making ends meet, especially the kids' book arena. Yeah, you know, because they're not making much money when they sell a book. um, And they're not going to make a whole lot of money doing school visits either, but that's their day job. Like that's what they do mm-hmm. when they're not writing. That's how they're supplementing their income. This is in they addition get some to marketing any- for it. Kind of like a bookstore. Yeah. Visit. Some people buy the books. Yeah. You know. 
And, you know, ostensibly people who write for children like children, so they like being around them and talking I, to them. I think and so, yeah. I, yeah, I, you know, we know that's not the case for all of them. But, you know, so particularly for queer authors, this has just decimated what they do. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard stories about schools now asking for these authors to, like, share what their presentation's going to look like beforehand to get approval. Um, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute here, you mm. know. Um, so the survey is going to get a sense of what it looks like for authors right now when it comes to school visits and connected to the kinds of books that they're writing and talking about, because my sense of it and just the sense I get from what I see in, you know, author chat is that books buying about people of color and queer people and social justice themed are seeing like big drops in the sorts of invitations they're getting and the ability to meet their readers i hadn't put that together i'd seen anecdotally stories of and i I should have thought that it's part of a bigger trend i was probably just seeing the tip of the iceberg of uh, something getting canceled something getting postponed something moved to a different venue making it voluntary outside of school versus meeting you know all that kind of stuff that goes into it um be very curious to see the results um of that survey, I guess, to, to move into other self-censorship sort of news, before Cormac McCarthy passed, mm. the big sort of like Tempest in a Teapot, I don't know if it's a Tempest in a Teapot, that was happening on social media in the book world last week was Liz Gilbert mm-hmm. um, posting that she was pulling her new novel, I don't know for, I, I, I don't remember, I don't have the text in front of me, it was helpfully on Instagram and TikTok, which there's no transcripts of, so you can't reference or link too easily. I'm an old man. I don't want you to say. I want everything delivered by pigeon um, <laughs> that's on typewriter. That's what I want at this point. But because her book is set in, it sounds like kind of an alternate history where there's a breakaway group um, in the Soviet Union, in Siberia specifically, that chooses to go live apart. And it's mm-hmm. part climate fiction, part political activism. And she's pulling the book. So having said that, why do you, why would, if you haven't heard the story, why do you think she's pulling the book? Just give yourself a second. Because yeah. I don't think you're going to come up with it. Maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong about this. Just give your, <sighs> I, if, I, if I had the rights to the Jeopardy, um, final Jeopardy music I'd insert here, I'll just give you a second here. All right. All right, here you go. It's because a seemingly organized group of, or maybe it's just an individual person with a bump profile started review bombing her Goodreads page for this book, um, saying that because of Russia's war in Ukraine, this book should be pulled because it's disrespect. This is where I get a little lost even in conveying it. I think it's disrespectful to Ukraine to do this, to set a book in Russia. Uh, I'm sorry, the Soviet Union, that's different than Russia politically different but you can understand the confusion i can i can read you a couple of the comments Um, all right give me the comments yeah yeah put Uh, put the words in their own mouth for once sure really quote unquote perfect time to promote quote mystic russian soul and quote russia and church when it's are committing genocide i'm reading it exactly as it is um another quote it's time to forget about all imperialistic shit that Russia doing over the centuries. Maybe, Elizabeth, you should have spent your pandemic time reading all about Russian terror. Sad that after 15 months of invasion, you still think that book about poor Russian family is a good choice. So clearly, these are people who are coming with a political agenda. And it's just it's just a way of fighting some front on a cyber war in this Ukrainian-Russian conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is not to say, please don't misunderstand me, Um, Russia is very wrong in this situation. It's a terrible act of violence, like all things. And to something to the tune of 500 of these, using some somewhat similar language, so I don't know if there's a a room of people in Ukraine or somewhere else, I don't know how this stuff works. Writing, you know, and starting Goodreads accounts, right? A lot of these have no other reviews. It's one star. And the book is out, so they haven't read it. And this has led Gilbert, and I don't know how much it's related to her publisher. We haven't said this, but the decision was made, and Gilbert was the front of this. And I don't know if she's taking the bullet for the publisher by putting herself on Front Street here. I don't know what's happening to pull the book because it's not the right 
time, I mean, the language is pretty vague about, mm-hmm. and there's there's a whole discourse about this is feckless on Gilbert's part, or this is bad on the, I think this is unfortunate for like nine different reasons. I have to admit, I don't, we haven't talked about this all, I'm not sure what your read on this is, and maybe they know something we don't, um, but I could understand being really nervous if you're Gilbert or the publisher, and I don't, I'm not endorsing the decision or whatever. I could be understand being nervous right now if this is where this is starting to to have this book in the world. I don't know what else you're subject to. We, we've had some experience, not on this scale, on the site and on social, anyone that is, especially if you're a woman, especially if you have a political event at all or an idea in your head, you're going to get this, unfortunately. But this seems different. This seems organized and it's related to a conflict that's outside of the scale of what the sort of upmarket literary fiction world that Gilbert has has, has lived in. I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be, Kelly. I, I don't know. Should, I, there's part of me that's like they're they're taking this seriously, and that makes sense. There's a part of me that's like these are just trolls, and this was happens on Goodreads. So I'm feeling a little conflicted. Help me sort this out. What what, what what's going on here with this story? I I'm conflicted is a really good word. Um, you know, there's a lot to be asked here. Of can a book never be set in Russia? Because right. we know this is a very unpopular war with the Russian, you know, citizens as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in, in some ways, you're thinking, okay, this is a way to write a story in the country that takes out this very unpopular war and allows a story to be set there, um, which is like the nature of fiction. You can you can write things. Um, right. that I don't think that's that really it, in dispute at this point. Like, yeah, I don't think any yeah. serious person like you know what, Liz, this was mm-hmm. in bad taste. Glory to Ukraine. I, yeah. I don't. Yeah. But it's important to say that I think I don't think anyone's really seriously entertaining that at this point. Yeah. But anyway, it's good to put on the table. Um, you know, so my first read on this whole thing is, you know, I, it's self censorship because she's choosing yes. to take it away. But my initial thought on it is like this has to be coming from the publisher, and it has to be coming because it's being review bombed on Goodreads. Well, who cares about Goodreads except? Mm. That Goodreads is Amazon owned, and those reviews show up on Amazon. Um, You know, there's a connection. So it's hard not to think the publisher is thinking along the lines of, and this is an example that is very, very different, but I'm going to put it out there the American Dirt situation, which, Mm. um, you know, did Penguin Random House, you pulled Gilbert's book. That's who the publisher is on this one, right? Or am I thinking of. I don't know. Is it this might Simon be and Schuster? SNS. Uh, it might be Echo. It, it's one of. The, it's like it's either Echo or Knopf it's, or it's, Little Brown. It's, it's Penguin Random House. Um, okay. Yeah. So, are they thinking we don't want to get in a situation like that? So let's pull this from the start and, like, you know, let, let what happens happens. Um, mm. That's my initial thought, and I, I said something about that on Twitter, and I had two publishers um, respond and say, "No way." that that's what that would come from the publisher um Hmm. both had said that no publisher would ever look at a book like that that is a guaranteed book club book from an author who is you know beloved and say you know this criticism on goodreads is enough to make us think that this shouldn't happen so american dirt sold by the way i mean that's yeah talk about i mean in that it sold like gangbusters i don't think that would be an issue here right um But, you know, is there something we don't know? Like that was she getting threats? Where, I think that's a serious. I mean, was she getting death threats? I think that's a real possibility. We, we didn't. Yeah, I, I think it has to be a possibility. I, I don't know the answer to this one. Like, I'm still thinking that it's the publisher side, and they know something that we don't know, or they are just at this situation between book bans going on. We're going into year right. three, five. Seven, twelve, yeah. um, right. you know the laws that are coming down across the country, and then on top of that, you add this is an internationally set book in a country that has been politically challenged um, with us as a country. Not to mention this very unpopular war with Ukraine, and um, mm-hmm. you know now we're upsetting Ukrainian citizens. And are they thinking at this point like there's so many levels to? ways this could go wrong that it's not worth it despite the fact we know that it will sell um yeah. i don't know i don't know I just, I don't, is it i just don't believe this thing's going to end up in the dustbin either i also don't yeah. see that as an outcome like this, this is gonna the snow forest is going to become like 
the, the galleys of this are going to be some like weird archival gem because they don't exist anywhere. <laughs> I just don't. Does she reset it in Finland? Mm. I, you know, because it's a climate book, so part of it's about being in Siberia where it's cold. That also seems like a weird outcome. Like I don't know where we go from here. All the things that I can reasonably imagine don't seem likely. Maybe there's a we hold it. Maybe this was a stop the 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 review bombing move, mm-hmm. and in three months. They issue a press release that says, you know, we've done a thorough review. We've asked some Ukrainian experts or something like this to review the book. And we've decided that it's the responsible thing. And here's an excerpt. And here's Liz Gilbert's statement. Maybe this was just kind of a kind of stemming the the flood of whatever was happening here to get a little distance and a little breathing room. My guess is that's probably what will happen. But Mm -hmm. a very, very unusual situation. To see something like this. I can't remember it's like um, to be quite yeah. honest with you. Yeah, because like the the stories we've seen where a book has been pulled, we knew it was coming. Like we saw the writing right. on the wall, or you know we uh, we were there for when it was happening. You know, <laughs> or, um. or it gets soft canceled. Like it shows up in Edelweiss is canceled, and it's not a big enough author or book that mm-hmm. anyone even notices. It just goes away and, and never yeah. comes out. That's another outcome there. So yeah, I don't know if you're a little birdie. Um, podcast at bookwrite.com I will keep <laughs> if I can't say anything that's fine um, and just for me to know um, or to keep anonymous that's also fine we're going to do our last sponsor break and finally get to the, the story we started on you know, the <laughs> number one thing we're going to talk about here but we'll get to here after the sponsor break Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Um, this story is in Publisher's Lunch. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have... Let's see. I'm, I'm going to pull up my documents here to have the author give the author... It's Katie Hirschberger. Thank you very much, Katie Hirschberger. Yep. And the long story is... And it seems like Publisher's Lunch has been doing more of this kinds of stuff. Maybe I haven't been mm-hmm. paying attention, but more kind of industry nitty-gritty. The kinds of stuff that's too inside baseball for the New York Times, but it's very important in the world of books and reading to understand how the sausage gets made mm-hmm. and this is about the I guess we've talked about this on the show before and it, and it comes out every now and again and it should and it doesn't seem to change all that much but the pretty poor pay that booksellers get and I'm not saying indie booksellers because this also includes Barnes and Noble and they are not indie um, and well, is that the headline it's pretty poor Kelly I mean what what's the headline for you beyond that or what's the subhead of that so let me start by kind of giving my read on the article. This is, again, yes, it's a paywall piece. Um, you know, if you can access it, it's worth accessing it, um, you know, purchasing, whatever. Um, and it's, it is about indie bookseller pay, but it's about the different pay models that bookstores use. Right, fair. So, yes, 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 yes. Um, that, that piece was the bulk of the story that, you know, it looks at why some indie bookstores can pay a different way than others based on whether it uses a nonprofit model or a for-profit model or a profit-sharing model and um, really interesting stuff. But that wasn't like the meat and potatoes for me. The meat and potatoes came in a link at the end of that article that mm-hmm. was a um, survey that indie booksellers could participate in and share how much money they made per hour. They named the bookstore, they named their uh, title, most of them were booksellers, and then their um, hourly pay or they put a whole salary. And it was a pretty good cross-section of data in terms of states that they're in and major cities across the country that they were in. And 
I, I pulled that out and just looked at what booksellers were getting paid, what indie booksellers um, were getting paid. And, mm-hmm. and it was focused on indie booksellers. Um, contextualized with the fact that we had just seen another Barnes & Noble, the one in Union Square in New York City, so their flagship store, become a union shop um, yes. so that they can get better pay and better protections in their job. Indie booksellers, some of them are unionized, so they're unionized at the Strand in New York City, and there's a few others that are unionized, but um, most aren't. And so it was a really fascinating look at what they're paid per hour versus what a living wage in that particular Mm -hmm. part of the country is. And for the most part, not a single indie bookstore pays a living wage, no matter where they're at in the country. and it varies widely. Shocking. In some places, I mean, just that none. Uh, I mean, you think some none. I mean, none. none. But I, I, you know, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, a room of one's own in Madison, Wisconsin, very, very close. I mean, it was like a sixty cent difference uh, right. between what they pay and what a living wage is in the city. And then also the Lip Bar in the Bronx. Theirs was like Noel. seventy cents. Yeah. So. Great job. And I think it is really worth noting that the two bookstores that were closest to paying a living wage are queer and owned by people of color. Um, So the people who are most, what's the right word, have been advocating for this the most are also the ones showing up the most um, to make it happen. Um, Yeah, it's just, it was a fascinating perspective because you think of indie bookstores as these great places and so many do do great things and they advocate for you know supporting indie but then you look at how they're paying their own employees and in some places it's like cost of living is you know 1915 an hour we're talking cost of living is a single person with no children um and they're paying their employees 13 dollars an hour how do you justify that gap and and still call yourself like this great you know bastion of of all good things in your community but your poor bookseller has to work 12 other jobs to like live in the same city yeah um and then and and it does make a difference to i mean there's just not a lot of money in especially independent bookstores totally you go up the chain the strand barnes noble powell's Mm -hmm. just scale gives you some difference there also like at the strand and powell's you sell used books Mm-hmm. And the cost of acquisition, you get a higher cut of the the sticker price, um, the price sold. And so I don't know what the answers are, right? I mean, there's yeah. been over time floated that publisher should do more to support indie somehow. And I remember one story, one idea that Rebecca and I talked about a long time ago was like kind of a carriage fee, like if just having the book on the shelf was worth something to the publisher, mm-hmm. even if it didn't sell. So like 10 cents per title per month of my books you carry, I'll give you. Basically, where is the if there's more money out there, where is it and how can it flow mm-hmm. to people not making living wages? Now, you can talk and about, ha- I mean, there's a different conversation about what above living wage, not getting, but let's yeah. just say we want to get people to living wage and then right. anything above that is a different kind of a conversation. And I don't and, know where you go from here because I think most of these stores aren't making money hand of fist. Maybe there, maybe no. there's owners that are making a bunch of money, but I don't think that's the story here, Kelly. I don't think it is. No, and it's not. And that's why I really suggest reading the original piece yes. because they talk about why this is not possible or like why it is so difficult to do that. And it's because of the different models they use to even remain, you know, in business. Hmm. And so, um, you know. Taking these numbers completely out of context is not fair, but I also think it's important to look at those numbers without context and be like, oh, um, you know, bookseller at the Strand is making $14 an hour. How are they paying to live in New York City? Um, I don't know. They aren't. I have no idea. Yeah, they aren't. Um, And and there's something to be said about, like, pausing with that and pausing with, you know, all of the marketing that goes around indie bookstores. And, And I'm not demonizing indie bookstores here. I love them. But it's interesting to see that like stark contrast of you know celebrate support love indie bookstores they're so important and they are but they can't support their own employees either right. um, and so it's a it's an uncomfortable uh, set of thoughts to sit with but I think important thoughts to sit with yeah um, and that there's no easy answers because in the Harper Collins unionization there was like there's millions of dollars of corporate profit and it felt like okay some of that 
redirect to the lowest paid employees. Without that sort of reservoir of cash to redirect, at least, you know, if we take these, I, I think we generally understand that's what's happening here. What else can be done? You know, one of the things that's brought up too is that the price of the book is on the book. And I don't know if it's legal. I don't know if it's in the agreements of publishers that they can't put a, they can't do a markup, like on a, God forbid, a, a markup on a $30 hardcover. I just paid this at Powell's the other day. And I, it was just for a regular literary fiction, you know, which, anyway, that's a different conversation. But if they mark that up to $33, is there more margin there? And then does that, and then A, does that even flow to the employees, which it may not? And then B, does that reduce the sales? Then you're less competitive with the Amazons and Walmarts and Targets of the world. Do you lose market share? Do you actually make fewer dollars because the markup goes up? I don't, I don't know the answers. I think there's a lot of case to be made that a lot of these should be co-ops, nonprofits. Maybe they have membership models that they're supported mm-hmm. like an, your local art center, right? Where you, 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 people sign up to support their art center not because of the ticket price of the ballet they're going to. They pay in excess of that so that the thing exists. And part mm-hmm. of that could be that the bookstore then makes a commitment to pay living wage to all employees. Right. You know, yeah. Um, I think it's because it it can be difficult to justify paying full sticker to an independent bookstore that at the Strand full sticker when you know the employees are getting fourteen dollars an hour, and know that right. Amazon workers warehouse workers are getting paid more. Generally speaking, they just are. They, yeah. they just get paid more in general. It's it's a tricky situation. I don't have a clear answer. Um, I don't either. Um, doesn't mean you can't but, look. Doesn't mean you shouldn't look at it, as you said. Right, and it's also you know I think there's value in looking at the indie bookstores that are like doing their best to get there yes. and and giving them like all the kudos and maybe putting some more of your money there because you can mm-hmm. order online and get it sent and you know um, plus we know that they're minority owned so they're thinking about these issues in maybe a different way than some other indies um, have never had to before. Yeah. And some, and I wonder what the turnover is like at these places. The Strand, I know, I knew some people that used to work there. They always were having labor trouble because they didn't pay that much. Like, maybe, maybe there's a way in which something could be different that makes it easier for people to live. I, it's always, it's been a problem for a long time. Like since I start, mm-hmm. since we started this show, I think early we're like looking at this. Um, does Bookshop.org money flow to? They flow to independent bookstores. Does that help raise wages at all? Is that something that could be built in? I, I just don't know where the money is. I just don't. It's easy to spend other people's money if you don't know mm-hmm. that it doesn't oh, yeah. exist. That's always the yeah. easiest thing to do. Um, well, that's our show. You can find links in the show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. Shoot me an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, you can find Kelly's literary activism work. They're probably the newsletter is the easiest way to find it all, but also you can follow her on Twitter. You can also follow the site. You can listen to First Edition. A new episode came out on Wednesday the 14th. I had Kendra Winchester on. We talked about the long audiobook boom. I was making the argument that today represents, this year represents the 15th anniversary of the beginning of the audiobook boom. Um, Mm. I tried to make that case to her. You can come see if you agree. And then Sharifa Williams comes on. And we do a new segment there called the Instabuys, where we, what authors in science fiction fantasy for both of us, we Instabuy. We're just in on what that author is doing. Had a really good time there. Anywhere you get your podcasts. Kelly, anything you want to plug beside what I plugged for you? No, but I was going to say, you had asked me on the last episode what celebrity memoir uh, I would want to have. You've been thinking about this? This is wonderful follow-up, Kelly. I'm clearing that. Let's hear it. I have been thinking about it, and my answer is Lindsay Lohan. Hard to beat. Yeah. Um, cause, cause it sounds like she's doing okay now. So I'm, I'm, we'll see. We'll see what, if we get what we're going to get, if anything from her and if it's going to be like what I'm anticipating comes from Brittany. Um, I think she's got to clear out for Brittany. She's got to get Brittany the fall. So the (laughs) earliest we can have a Lohan memoir would be, uh, the spring. Yeah. I've never, I'm not not like a hater on Lohan. I've never been a Lohan fan, but I'm really pulling for her. I'm pulling for everyone. I always pull for everyone. But especially people who've been through some stuff um, mm-hmm. and have been subject to a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great pick. And uh, I um, on the most I just recorded with Rebecca the it book segment it book knockaround for July, and I'll I'll preview this because you were on the show when we were trying to guess with that book. We took the BTS book off the board. We made it ineligible mm. because mm. it's just its own phenomenon. It wasn't even interesting to talk. It's going to outsell everything. 
And yeah. but it's it's kind of not a book story. It isn't. It isn't. That's a BTS story. Uh-huh. And I was thinking about that in terms of the it book segment because we did select. Uh, this is spoiler, but if you haven't listened in, in two weeks, <laughs> you know I don't have to tell you. We did select Page Boy by Elliot Page uh, as the it book. Yeah. But it's like, at what level is it transcend the book world? And I think it's very, you know it when you see it. And I wonder, and we talked about, would we have made Spare ineligible? Because that's such mm. a big, and I don't know the right answer, but BTS felt like it was going to be a big kind of like collector's item, feel good thing. It needs some substance, I guess. And maybe BTS, I'll be wrong, and I would be dead wrong. We should have put BTS, and it's a really heartfelt memoir about you know their life and, and loves and everything else. But I feel like with Spare and with Page Boy and with Britney's book, there's going to be a lot of like real stuff in it. It's going to be real content heavy. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I'm feeling like I'm making the distinction. If you quibble, that's fine. You can shoot me an email or don't. Uh, do me a favor and don't. And just you know understand that I'm doing the best that I can. That's okay, too. <laughs> I think Lindsay Lohan is a very good. I, you know, I was. I'm listening right now. We're not doing a frontless foyer because we're running long already. I'm reading. Um, or listening to um, Burn It Down, the the Mo Ryan book about Hollywood, mm. and it is intense. Um, and my take is we need one of these for publishings, but for publishing, but that's a different story and a different podcast and a different porter. But it's quite eye opening. Um, if you're into well, that, gosh, amazing stuff. Um, while we're continuing to go past our hour, yes, um, I know. I'm, I'm just, so sorry. It's, no, it's all good. I was going <laughs> to say I'm I'm listening to Conspirituality right now, which is about oh. the rise of I I like calling them pastel Q, but it's the um <laughs> fi, you know the the lefties who have gotten into QAnon conspiracies and how, for example, your favorite yoga teacher is now hawking you know essential oils over vaccines and. Um, these oh, people boy. that were once very rational have now gone, you know, the the very far right, even though they are very far left, and how it's just a giant circle. They came all and, the way back around. They did the whole. Mm-hmm. They transnavigated. They Magellan. Yeah, they came all the way yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> oh and, no. And it's just to say, like, oh man, that it, it's a must read. I, you know, I I'm a yoga teacher and listening to all this stuff about some of the leaders in yoga and the history of yoga and its connection with fascism, stuff I never knew about. Wow. Um, just like blowing my mind right now. Um, what's it called? What's it called? I'll put a link in the show notes. It, but what's, it, what's the name? Yeah, it's, it's called Conspirituality. And they are, while they're talking about this, they're also talking about just how terrible science like real science communication has been um Mm. and how they themselves have been duped with some research thinking it was great and then learning who was behind it so i think it's a very fair look at um just how we have gotten to where we're at and how you know conspiracy theories have just kind of had the fuel to like really ignite over the last few years um but yeah i i'm gonna have to check i'm I'm gonna have to yeah take a look at that it is cool. it is great, and I think ties in exactly to what we've talked about, like broadly, but also ties into what you're discussing with the Hollywood um, mm-hmm. book, and you know, yeah, just it's all fun out there, Kelly. Everything's fine. It's Everything so fun. seems to be normal and going well. <laughs> I just wish this were the biggest diggalest uh, episode or biggest. <laughs> God damn it! You're right. <laughs> we used to have fun. We should enjoy things. I know. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Kelly, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you all later.